Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. I'm your host, Julian Huguet, and as you may know, I'm someone who has a lot of different interests. And as a result, there are a lot of things I need to get done at any given time. Frankly, I never have enough. Most weeks, I'm juggling multiple projects, each with their own demands and deadlines. And something else about me, I'm always trying to learn new things. Sometimes I'm deep into research on a topic for something like this podcast, or because, you know, it's 3 a.m. and I have Wikipedia open. Sometimes I'm working on learning a new instrument, or I'm building something. And I know I'm not alone in this. Whether you're studying for school, or learning a new language, or just trying to be more productive with all the work you have to do, learning is a constant. And personally, I'd love to be better at it. I'd like to learn to learn, as they say. So, I thought I'd talk about the science of how we learn things. I'll do some myth-busting about the whole visual versus auditory or sensory learner thing. I'll explore proven methods for learning new skills faster or remembering information for longer periods of time. And ultimately, go into how we could all be structuring our time to be more productive and as efficient as humanly possible. Oh, and on that note, we'll get into toxic productivity too. That's important. There's a lot to cover here, so let's take it from the top. In short, learning is how we create a mental model of the world around us. For animals, learning occurs when a personal experience results in behavioral change. So, something happens to them, and then they act differently as a result. Not all organisms do this. Some insects, for example, spend their lives following a set of developmental steps without ever reacting differently to the world around them. They may never change their behavior based on something they perceive. They have little need to learn. In a human example, if you were to touch a hot stove, you'd immediately pull your hand away without much thought, right? Pulling your hand away, though, isn't a learned behavior. It's a reaction. But if in the future you avoid touching the stove in the first place, that would be learning. You're changing your behavior based on a past experience. Learned behaviors are developed over time by organisms that need to react to a world that's unstable and unpredictable. Learning where predators live and avoiding that area can mean the difference between survival and being lunch. When we're born, a lot of our learning comes easily. Our young brains are pre-wired to learn what's known as biologically primary material. This material includes things like your first language. It's how a toddler learns to talk, even without having to run flashcards like I do, or pull an all-nighter. Later in life, our brains have to work harder to learn biologically secondary material. This would be things like math, writing, playing an instrument, or speaking a new language as an adult. The process of acquiring that secondary material is understood to happen in three steps. Encoding, storage, and retrieval. It doesn't really matter what you're learning. It could be the map layout of Metroid Dread, or training to become a surgeon. You still encode, store, and retrieve. And understanding how these steps work is how we can approach learning more effectively. Now, there are a lot of different ways that we absorb the world around us. I won't go into all of the clinical definitions, but we can encode by responding to different stimuli around us, by problem solving, by repetition, by association, and more. All of these are just categories of those individual experiences I mentioned earlier that teach us to behave differently. We'll come back to the steps of storage and memory retrieval later, but right now I want to focus on encoding and get into how we actually take in information, both in a classroom and out. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was told that people are either visual or auditory learners, that you learn best either by looking at a picture or by listening to a teacher. But lately, well, frankly, science has been tearing that idea apart. The idea of different learning styles for students has been around for a while, but really it exploded in the 90s, when a teacher named Neil Fleming created something known as the VARC questionnaire. He felt that if people had strong and unique preferences for things like cars, food, partners, maybe they have preferences for the ways that they learn, too. To answer his question, Fleming observed more than 9,000 different classes, which is a lot of extra school for an adult to sit through. And that's before you could record classes and watch a lecture at double speed and my attention span, I, I just couldn't, I'm sorry. From his observations, Fleming made a list of questions to help students figure out what kind of learners they are. It's called VARC. V for visual, A for oral, R for read or write, and K for kinesthetic. So, it was meant to determine whether you learn better by seeing diagrams, by hearing information, by reading or writing, or by practicing it hands-on. And the questions include things like, if you have a problem with your heart, would you prefer that the doctor A showed you a diagram of what was wrong, B described what was wrong, C gave you something to read to explain what was wrong, or D used a plastic model to show you what was wrong. And this perspective on learning made sense for a lot of educators. If you could tailor your teaching method to a student's particular learning style, wouldn't they learn better? Here's where science comes in and asks for receipts. In a 2018 study out of Indiana University, hundreds of students took the VARC questionnaire to see if their results lined up with the ways they naturally like to study. If not, then they were given study strategies that fit their VARC learning style. The study found that the students who did these new strategies didn't actually do better on their tests. The researchers also found that even though they were involved in this study, many students completely ignored the techniques recommended to them based on their learning styles, which is like the most college thing to happen in your carefully planned research study. But still, this is evidence that learning styles don't give students an advantage. By the way, that paper is titled Another Nail in the Coffin for Learning Styles, so the researchers really aren't putting up with any misinterpretations of their data. Study after study has reached the same conclusion. There's no correlation between sticking to your supposed learning style and actually performing better. As another sassy article title put it, learning styles, where's the evidence? Even Neil Fleming has backed off a bit, saying in an article of his own in 2006 that sometimes students and teachers invest more belief in VARC than it warrants, and that some also confuse preference with ability or strengths. You can like something, but whether or not you're good at it, eh, that's another matter. Like me and hockey. And relationships. One study found that learning using multiple styles can be helpful though. So engaging with information with words and visuals may be better than using just words alone. It's a good reason to lean into multimedia learning. <coughs> Seeker videos. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. All this is not to say that people learn in the same way. There are people who think in fundamentally unique ways. For example, people with autism or dyslexia or, like me, with ADHD. And that can have a big impact on how they learn. But regardless of how best you encode information, all of this begs the question. What actually is the best way to learn? Which brings me to those next steps involved in learning. Storage and retrieval. 
This is how the brain takes the information it's absorbed and can not only hold on to it, but pull it out and use it when the situation requires it. So, let's get into what neuroscience has to say about optimizing learning and building long-term memories that serve us when we really need them. I'm talking about neuroplasticity, working memory, synapses, and how to tap into the 90% of your brain that we don't use. Just kidding, that, that last one's not real. It's the hook of that well-known Bradley Cooper movie. You know the one I'm talking about. So, as we talked about, learning happens in three steps. We have encoding, the taking in of information and understanding it. We have storage, which is where the information is retained. And then we have retrieval, or the accessing of that stored information. And this is all obviously happening in the brain. What's cool is that neuroscience has taught us so much about how learning occurs within the brain, it's leading to new approaches in how we can be better learners. Learning happens because of neuroplasticity in the brain. Neuroplasticity is the ability of brain cells to adapt and change. To be specific, it's the organization of the connections between the neurons. Neuroscientists used to think that the brain stopped developing before adulthood and that any later brain trauma was permanent. But now we're finding that, thanks to neuroplasticity, that just isn't the case. A way to think about the learning process is that the brain can change in three ways. Chemical change, structural change, and functional change. When you first start learning something new, there are tiny electrochemical pulses that fire from one neuron to another across a gap called a synapse. It's a little chemical change as a result of what you're interacting with. This forms a learning pathway. At this stage, the information is in the brain as a short-term memory. And as you're thinking about it and comparing it to your existing mental map of knowledge, it's in what scientists call the working memory. Working memory lasts for about 15 to 30 seconds. It can store about four items of information at a given time. But the more that these same neurons fire together, the stronger the connections between cells get. So if you practice a task over and over, the connections grow, so that a stimulation in one part of the brain is more likely to trigger the next one to go off. Or as neuroscientists like to say in the 90s, cells that fire together, wire together which is so cute, I would love that crocheted and hung up on my wall. This causes the second type of brain change, structural change. As connections are formed over time, the actual structure of the brain starts to change, and it means that the information is stored now in long-term memory. So, that's the first big tip on learning, repetition and practice. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, I know you tuned in hoping for a shortcut, easy way to study for a test, there's no way to cheat it. It's just learning by repetition and practice. I'm so sorry that what you already knew is what science supports. Ultimately, enough chemical and structural change will get you functional change, which occurs when the entire brain networks change. These networks become more efficient all across the board. This is also known as a reorganization of the brain. I should note, this isn't just a concept about learning, it's something happening in your physical brain. These connections are across the brain's gray and white matter, or the neural tissue in regions of the brain. Gray matter regions are for muscle control, sensory perception, emotions, speech, decision-making. White matter connects these regions together. I came across some cool examples of how learning in particular areas changes the physical gray matter in the brain by looking at fMRI scans. fMRI, or functional magnetic resonance imaging, can detect brain activity based on blood flow, oxygen, glucose, that sort of thing. Some older piano players can actually prepare for concerts by visualizing what they're going to play 
and the same motor maps light up in their brain as when they actually physically practice. People who practiced regular mindfulness were found to have increased the amount of gray matter in parts of the brain responsible for attention, memory, and emotional regulation. Learning a second language gave people more density in their gray matter and strengthened their white matter. And of course, the opposite is true. When people stop practicing what they've learned, the brain will trim or get rid of the connections that formed pathways. Or, if you only practice something once, it never gets moved into long-term memory or forms a lasting connection. So, that's how the whole process works. And with that in mind, there are things you can do to make sure that you are forming strong connections as you learn. There's repetition and practice, like we touched on. Recall is another big one. If you can put your vocabulary list away and then try and rewrite it, or if you can describe a concept you've learned out loud to someone else, you're forcing your brain to make connections that last. This is the testing effect, and it works best when done with short but frequent intervals. Another way to use your brain's functions to your advantage is to put information into context as you learn it. If you can take new material and relate it to knowledge that you already have, you'll achieve more successful memory storage and retrieval. This is also why tricks like mnemonic devices work. I know as long as I live, I'm never going to forget righty-loosey-lefty-tighty. That's a joke. Please don't bolt your car tires on by screwing in the wrong direction and have a huge accident and then call me up. Don't do that. While we're at it, let's just go ahead and take this neuroscience brain learning palooza to the extreme. When I was researching, I found this incredible new study about learning and the brain that I feel like I really need to share with you. It's so fascinating. It's about how comprehension changes in the brain when it comes to really abstract topics. This study out of Carnegie Mellon University looked at how theoretical physicists are able to think about topics that are hard to apply to anything concrete. Earlier, we talked about how connecting new knowledge with something you already understand helps you create a mental model of the new information. But when it comes to subjects like quantum particles or dark matter or the multiverse, the brain doesn't really have a conceivable scale to link to. This is part of why these topics are so confusing if you're just stepping into them and trying to understand them for the first time. Researchers took fMRI scans of the physicists' brains and watched them think about measurable physics topics like acceleration, wavelength, frequency. And then they took scans when the physicists thought about immeasurable topics like dark matter, duality, cosmology. What they found is that the physicist's brains actually separated the two into different processes in the brain. There's a part of the average person's brain that lights up when we try to apply scale or understand the extent of things, like how big is this rock? How tall is that building? When someone like me thinks about the expansion of the universe, this part of my brain fires off trying to figure out that concept against the scale of things I know, and that's not really helpful here. The universe is just too big. This study found that for physicists, and especially older, very experienced physicists, the scale or extent part of the brain doesn't light up much at all. So the brain is more efficient at skipping the comparison and just getting into the real thinking. As one of the researchers put it, there's a sense that as physicists grow older, the concepts kind of crystallize in the mind and you end up using them in a more efficient way. If we're talking about deep, deep learning, that's the good stuff. It might just be why older physicists can make incredible breakthroughs even late in their careers. Now, I wanna talk about how we can take these learning concepts and put them into action in our day-to-day -day lives. Whether you're working a nine to five, you're studying for school, or just trying to master a new skill, 
there's been a lot of research in how we can succeed. Let's start off with leaning into your body's natural abilities when it comes to being productive. This is actually part of the field of science known as performance research. So I'm talking about tested and proven tips here. A lot of this research points to the circadian rhythm or your body's internal biological clock as the driver for when you're going to be at your best to get things done. This clock is made up of about 20,000 neurons and it sits in the hypothalamus in the brain. It receives direct input from the eyes, basically watching for when it's dark so it knows to release melatonin and make you sleepy, and then when to wake you up when it's light. Throughout the day, you have peaks and dips in alertness when you'll be at your best. A compilation of research analysis in the Harvard Business Review said that on average, people peak in alertness and energy a few hours after the day begins, until around noon. Then from noon to 3 p.m., there is a significant dip, and I've definitely felt this, where it's hard to focus, get things done, usually after lunch. Now, I always assumed it was me digesting my pastrami sandwich, but a lot of it is really due to the circadian swoop. What's cool is we get another boost from about 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. before it tapers off and eventually we need to sleep. Our bodies are at their absolute lowest levels at around 3.30 in the morning, which seems super obvious if you've ever crammed for a test or pulled an all-nighter, but had to be said. People are not completely alike in these times, though. There's real evidence that some people are morning larks and others are night owls. The official term is a chronotype, and it's something that's partially determined by your genes. The patterns of alertness and energy are the same, but the morning people start earlier and the night owls start later. Figuring out which one you are, though, to apply this advice, that should be pretty obvious. But it can change over the course of your life. Kids tend to be morning larks, teens swing more towards night owls, and then many adults go back to being morning people. It's a good case for not testing high school students first thing in the morning, and leaning into when they are actually going to function, which is usually later in the day. I feel like a lot of the time on this show I'm debunking concepts like this, so it's cool to see how this one is actually true when it comes down to it. So, working with your clock can help you learn better and be more productive. Try scheduling your most important tasks during your own peaks in energy and see how it goes. There are other things that have been found to help focus and concentration. You may have heard that it's good to take breaks, and this is backed up as well. In study after study, people that took periodic breaks had more mental stamina and higher performance levels compared to people who work straight through without stopping. As for the optimal length and frequency of these breaks, though, well, the results vary a bit. This question involves ultradian rhythms, which are a little like internal clock cycles inside of your big circadian rhythm clock. One of these cycles is a rest alertness cycle that comes around about every 90 minutes. This is the same cycle that carries you through different stages of sleep. A study by the U.S. Army Institute backed this up further when it found that people could focus better and had more energy when they worked in 90-minute intervals with 15 to 20-minute breaks in between. The Pomodoro Technique is similar to this, recommending that students study or work in 25-minute chunks followed by short breaks. Cool! So, now that we've established working with our bodies and taking regular breaks is beneficial, let's get into some of the weirder things that have been studied around productivity. Chewing gum, for one, has popped up quite a bit. No pun intended. It was proven to boost concentration and test performance in a few studies and to impair short-term memory in others. One Columbia University professor took it upon himself in the 1930s to study every angle on chewing gum and performance. He wrote it all up in a book called Psychodynamics of Chewing. 
but he was funded by a company that made chewing gum. So the whole thing, kind of a mess, kind of like the underside of a table at my local fast food restaurant. There are more recent studies that say yes, gum helps with alertness, but ultimately, not by much. On a similar note, you may have seen ads around for nootropics, or apparently, as the dictionary tells me I'm supposed to pronounce it, nootropics. Anyway, I'm going to keep saying nootropics. These are substances that enhance cognition and memory and are supposed to facilitate learning. I won't go too deep into the specifics, but there is research showing that natural nootropics may increase blood circulation and oxygen flow to the brain, resulting in clearer cognitive performance. But the research emphasizes that there was only really a gain if the person was having poor brain function to begin with. The most common nootropics that actually have this effect are caffeine, L-theanine, which can be found in green and black teas, and omega-3s. So if you're already drinking coffee, tea, or eating well, there's really no need to take the supplements from your Instagram ads. Though I will sidebar that these are naturally occurring nootropics. For prescriptions, they really can boost performance for people with ADHD like me, or for people with certain sleep disorders. There was another funky angle to productivity that I wanted to talk about. Basically, when combined with emotional experiences or stimuli like stress, the brain has a heightened ability to make memories, and these memories last longer. This is likely because powerful parts of the brain like the amygdala are involved when we're emotional. It's slippery though because too much stress and it can distract or impair attention. But a little stress actually might be a good thing. With more results coming out about this, there are also educational programs in the works that want to tap into emotions like enthusiasm, curiosity, and expectancy to facilitate better learning. Optimizing productivity isn't always the goal, however, and actually focusing too much on being the perfect worker can ironically be counterproductive. Clinical psychologists have found a rise in stress levels due to toxic productivity which is a new name for workaholism, basically. It's not an official term. There's no such thing as workahol that I've ever seen, but you know what I mean. It's a way of saying that people prioritize work over other important things in life, like health and social connection. And chronic stress can cause health issues on its own. Hypertension, heart problems, depression. It's been shown to shorten life expectancy, which is really going to impact your productivity. Being tired is also not going to make you a better worker. Just like when someone's drunk, not getting enough sleep slows down neuron connectivity, resulting in weak concentration and memory loss. Same goes for eating poorly and not getting regular exercise. I, I know, I know, it sounds like I'm trying to convert you to be like on the keto diet or something. I promise I'm not. I'm just saying eating unhealthy has been linked to a 66% increased risk of productivity loss. And not exercising, or only exercising rarely, has been linked to a 50% increased risk of productivity lost. Seriously, take breaks. Take care of yourself. Take a walk, people. Becoming a more efficient learner or worker can help you carve out more time and energy for other things, like checking out more episodes of Seeker Plus. You know, the stuff that's important. Well, that does it for learning and productivity. I hope you've enjoyed this topic on Seeker Plus, and please let us know if there are any subjects that you want us to cover. We'd love to cover them all. Just line them up. We're going to use our newfound learning and productivity prowess to crank them out. As always, thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time on Seeker Plus.